Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Gilded Age West. Please follow along on the PowerPoint and turn to the first slide, The Gilded Age. The period from 1865 to 1898 is usually called The Gilded Age, and this comes from an 1873 novel by Mark Twain and Charles Warner. Gilded metals are shiny and gold-like on the surface, but cheap underneath. Twain's point was that politics looked good on the outside, but corruption lay underneath it all. And this is apt since the era is traditionally seen as one filled with intense political and economic corruption. In this era, society's movers were big businessmen, not politicians. This was borne out by the fact that in 1890, the top 12% of U.S. families owned 86% of the nation's wealth, and 40% of the United States families lived below the poverty line. Today, the top 12% only own 70% of the nation's wealth, though this gap has risen in the last 40 years. The point is that this is an age of great economic inequality and corruption that will create certain political and social upheavals that will lead to a change in American governance. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Bearded Presidents. This era has also been called the era of bearded presidents from New York and Ohio because most of the presidents came from there and, well, had beards. In 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio was elected. In 1881, James Garfield of Ohio was also elected, though he was assassinated in his first year in office. Garfield's vice president, Chester A. Arthur of New York, took over after his death, and Grover Cleveland of New Jersey was elected in 1885, making him the only Democrat to be elected in this era. He was superseded in 1889 by Benjamin Harrison of Indiana. Harrison was the first president to get electricity in the White House, but he and his wife were too scared to even touch the switches. He had the benefit of a Republican Congress for two years, and he managed to pass a flurry of legislation. Grover Cleveland was re-elected in 1893, making him the only president to be elected for two non-consecutive terms, and there's a great Simpsons joke about that. Lastly, in 1897, William McKinley of Ohio took office, though he was assassinated in 1901, which made Theodore Roosevelt the president. You should note that there were no real strong presidents between Lincoln and Roosevelt. Almost all of them believed that Congress should be more powerful than the executive, and this is an important point, since in the modern era, a strong president is the given when this is far from what the Founding Fathers originally envisioned. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Changes in the Land. When people think of the Gilded Age, most think of industry, immigrants, and growing cities in the Northeast. But we are starting out West with the ongoing conflicts between whites and Native Americans. So we must ask ourselves, what caused so many wars? In part, it stems from a differing view over property as Indians and whites viewed land ownership differently. So first, we must ask ourselves, what is a commodity? 
a commodity is something that can be bought, sold, or transferred by a will to a descendant upon your death. Now, white Americans believe that you can privately have ownership of the land. You can buy land, settle it, improve it, and then put it in your will for your descendants. Natives do not believe in this. They believe that you could claim and own land communally, but they did not believe that land was a private commodity. They thought that you could use the land even if someone else had owned or claimed it. So in the past, some natives had granted land claims to multiple groups of whites. Historian William Cronin once said, quote, The difference between Indians and Europeans was not that one had property and the other had none. Rather, it was that they loved property differently. In Theodore Roosevelt's book, The Winning of the West, he said, quote, The Indians never had any real title to the soil. This great continent could not have been kept as nothing but a game preserve for squalid savages. End quote. As we will see, sentiments like this would impact all of the relationships between whites and natives who disagreed on the basic usage and ownership of land itself. Please advance to the next slide entitled Indian Policy. Compounding the disagreements over property were pseudoscientific racism of the era. See, Darwinian science was big at this time. Charles Darwin had published his book The Origin of the Species in 1859, and it looked at how dominant and recessive traits were passed on. And then people took these ideas and ran with it, taking it in directions that Darwin never even thought of. One man, Herbert Spencer, an English philosopher who was not a scientist, created a popular idea called social Darwinism. And it was Spencer, not Darwin, who coined the term survival of the fittest. This is the idea that the most fit race would prevail over all others, and some whites pointed to social Darwinism and hoped that natives who they viewed as inferior would simply die off. Others wanted Indians to assimilate and give up their beliefs in culture in order to adopt white customs. Whites wanted natives to stop what they described as, quote, roaming around and hunting, and instead settle down and farm the way Europeans and their descendants had. To facilitate this, reservations were created, and they were supposed to be places where natives learned to live like whites. But in fact, reservations were put on the most squalid land in any given region and produced generational poverty. Whites also wanted natives to quit practicing their own religious ceremonies, cut their hair, and change their gender roles, since traditionally, Indian women farmed, and whites saw this as unsophisticated and too masculine behavior for Indian women. Now, we all know today that assimilation is bad because it forces the destruction of native customs and cultures. But there's an interesting point that we should make here. You see, African Americans after slavery were very eager to assimilate in the South, but they were not allowed to. In the West, due to more racial and ethnic diversity, African Americans could have a more expanded role, and they wanted to assimilate into that white culture of settlement out West. But they were given the worst lands and did not receive the same type of government support that white settlers did. Natives, on the other hand, rejected all the things that African Americans wanted. 
individual land ownership, education, and etc. To force the issue of assimilation, whites created special schools in order to indoctrinate Native Americans. An example of this is in Pennsylvania, where the Carlisle School was established. It pledged to, quote, kill the Indian to save the man, which meant basically to destroy the Native culture and force them to live like whites. This forced assimilation and reservation building was further facilitated in 1887 when Congress passed the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act broke up tribal lands into 160 acre or less parcels and then gave them to individual Indian families. The stated goal was to end communal land ownership, but it went even further. Another goal was to change the fundamental relationship between the government and native nations. From the founding of the Republic all the way to the late 1860s, the United States dealt with the Indians as nations. And much like in international relations, the federal government had to make formal treaties with native tribes. But from the 1870s onward, the government regarded Indians as wards or dependents of the nation-state whose affairs could be managed by the federal government. In this era, natives were not viewed as citizens and were thus not covered by the 14th or 15th Amendment. It was not until the Snyder Act, also called the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, that natives were granted federal citizenship and all the rights associated with it. In practice, after 1887, when you got your Dawes plot, you were subject to the laws and governance of the federal government, but did not have citizenship rights. Worse, any tribal land that was left over after Dawes plots had been distributed could then be sold to the general public. The end result was that there was much less land occupied by Native Americans. In 1881, 155 million acres of land were held collectively by natives, but by 1900, less than 78 million acres were occupied by natives. The point is that this policy of dispossession helps explain the wealth gap between white and native communities in all the societal ills that goes along with generational poverty to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Indian Wars. When Native Americans refused to assimilate, conflicts often occurred. Whites fighting Indians was unfortunately nothing new. From the 1850s to the 1860s, there were a series of Indian wars fought west of the Mississippi River. And for years, Natives in the West had held their own against isolated army garrisons on frontier forts and white settlers who traveled to settle the region. However, with the expansion of the army during the Civil War, the federal government now had an advantage, but natives continued to resist. On the Great Plains, the Sioux, the Cheyenne, and the Comanche often held their own. And an example of this is in 1867, when the Sioux won a war and forced the United States to abandon its forts in present-day Wyoming and Montana. However, the turning point came in 1874, when gold was discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota. This was sacred Sioux land guaranteed to them by treaty. But soldiers and gold hunters 
poured onto the land anyway. When conflicts broke out, the army was sent in to bring the Native Americans to heel, and this resulted in one of the most famous battles in 1876. This was already going to be a big year, since the country was preparing to celebrate its centennial in July and a pivotal presidential election was coming in November. In June of 1876, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer led a detachment of approximately 250 troopers from the 7th Cavalry into the Little Bighorn Valley, which culminated in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Custer had already been told that he was outnumbered, but he did not worry about that. After all, he was a decorated veteran of the Civil War and had stopped the Confederate cavalry cold on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. But his overconfidence would cost him and his men dearly. Waiting for him were approximately 2,500 warriors of the Sioux and Cheyenne tribes, led by Crazy Horse. Within an hour of making contact, all of Custer's men had been surrounded and killed, and the last man to actually see Custer alive was an Italian-born immigrant who had fought in the Italian Wars of Unification under Giuseppe Garibaldi. And I make this point to illustrate how immigration was changing the nation in the army at this time. While Crazy Horse had won a great battle, it was arguably the last Indian victory of the wars. The United States Army was learning how to win against natives simply by depriving Indians of what they needed most. Horses, buffalo, guns, and ammunition. In 1874, the United States Army had won a crushing victory against the Comanche in West Texas by killing hundreds, perhaps even a thousand, of Comanche horses. And they managed to do this with only killing four Comanche Indians. Without these horses, the Comanche were no longer a threat and were forced onto the reservations. After the Battle of Little Bighorn, the army applied this strategy to the Sioux and Cheyenne with similar results. Another example took place in 1877 when the army chased Native Americans and stopped them from entering into Canada. Before this occurred, the Nez Perce had a cordial diplomatic relationship with the U.S. government since Lewis and Clark had made contact with them during Jefferson's presidency. But as white settlers moved into Oregon, they wanted to push natives out, which sparked a new conflict. The Nez Perce fought several running battles with the United States Cavalry and bested them in every engagement. But the U.S. Cavalry was dogged in their pursuit, and the Nez Perce went on a ragged, several hundred mile running battle. The commander of U.S. forces, Oliver Otis Howard, who had led the Freedmen's Bureau during Reconstruction, pursued the natives under the leadership of Chief Joseph. Ultimately, Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce were defeated in 1877, only a dozen miles south of the Canadian border. While some native tribes tried to rebel in the 1880s, the Indian Wars were effectively over. Historian Elliot West, who teaches here at the University of Arkansas, and is one of the most distinguished historians of Native Americans in the American West, once said that by 1877, the forcible unification of the South and the Western Natives was complete in a process called 
greater reconstruction. And thus, all rival sovereignties to U.S. federal authority were destroyed, making the federal government reign supreme over the continent. The point is that this is not some glorious story of conquest, nor some stereotypical clash of cowboys and Indians, but of a powerful army of a nation-state, sweeping all before them and subjugating them to central authority. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Plight of the Natives. While Indian policy and wars of conquest were devastating to Indian communities, that was not the end of their suffering. Native Americans were also ravaged by diseases, especially smallpox. Due to the massive death tolls by these diseases, the smaller numbers of Native communities made it tougher for them to resist white expansion. In addition, the destruction of the buffalo really hurt them. Indians used almost every part of the animal in their ceremonies, buildings, and cooking. But throughout the 19th century, buffalo populations were decimated. In 1750, there was an estimated 30 million buffalo. By 1850, there was less than 10 million. And by 1900, there were only a few hundred left. And we have to ask ourselves, what caused this? One big factor was that white shot them all. In fact, quote-unquote sport hunters often shot them from trains. And there was a large market back east for tanned hides, which motivated even more killing. In total, natives, droughts, and diseases also killed the buffalo, and they were nearly on the verge of extinction. But does anyone actually know who saved the buffalo? The answer is Ted Turner, the owner of CNN. You see, he basically owns half of Montana and devoted large stretches of it to rehabilitate the buffalo population. Now, the buffalo population continues to grow to the point that we can buy their meat in some grocery stores, and I hate to admit it, but they are some good eating. The larger point is that this is an example of how one person can make a difference, though being a billionaire also helps. Another aspect of native plight was continued oppression to their culture. In 1888, a Sioux prophet told his people that if they performed the ghost dance, a sort of native messiah would come and Indian lands and ways of life would be restored. By the 1890s, white authorities were alarmed and sent troops to reservations where the dance was popular. This culminated in a tragedy in December 1890, when elements of the 7th Cavalry, Custer's old crew, rounded up 350 Sioux and took them to a camp at Wounded Knee, South Dakota. The soldiers demanded that the Indians give up their weapons, and when someone fired a rifle, perhaps by accident, the nervous soldiers fired into the crowd, and more than 200 Sioux died, including unarmed children, and all their corpses were left to freeze on the frigid ground. This horrific event was called the Wounded Knee Massacre. All told, native populations declined, and by 1900, there were only 228,000 Native Americans left, the lowest point ever. President Hayes, in his message to Congress, sums up the point well. 
quote, Many, if not most, of our Indian wars have had their origins in the broken promises and acts of injustice on our part, end quote. And you should note that this is the sitting president of the United States admitting that broken treaties and lies on the part of the government and its citizenry was the cause of the plight of Native Americans. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Who Came West? As buffalo were killed and Indians defeated, the West was opened up for others. So let us take a look at four to five groups that would travel to the West. The first are European immigrants, not from old Western Europe, but Central, Eastern, and Northern Europe. By the late 19th century, the Northern Great Plains were very ethnically diverse. In 1890, the new state of North Dakota had a higher percentage of foreign-born peoples from Germany, Scandinavia, and Russia than any other state. The next group were Asian immigrants, especially Chinese, on the West Coast and in the Rockies. They were usually young, single males who worked in the mines or on railroads. Many had fled the massive rebellions inside China as a result of corrupt king rulers and European exploitation. While some stayed and built families and communities, many wanted to make money and go home. White Americans were deeply antagonistic towards the Chinese because they were seen as very alien, with a different style script, language, religion, customs, clothing, food, and even fighting styles. Chinese people were forced into urban ghettos wherever they settled, which later gave rise to Chinatowns in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere. In addition, whites accused the Chinese of working too hard in doing what they considered to be unmanly jobs like laundry or chefs. Part of doing these professions was because there were few women and because there were not many jobs available to Chinese men due to the blacklisting by white Americans. But this was also just prudent entrepreneurial strategies to build businesses and acquire capital, which led many sons and grandsons of Chinese immigrants to one day have prosperous lives. The extreme animosity towards Chinese immigrants is best exemplified in federal legislation. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese immigration for 10 years and forbade Chinese citizenship and allowed the courts to deport them. This was made permanent from 1902 to 1943 by the Geary Act, but seemed to end during the Second World War. And can anyone guess why? That's right. The Chinese were our ally against Imperial Japan in the Second World War, hence why we temporarily suspended the law. The Geary Act remained in law until it was finally superseded under the Immigration Act of 1965 and then superseded again in 1990. The third group in the West were Latinos. Latinos had lived in the West since the Spanish Empire had settled the region. And when the United States defeated Mexico in the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848, the United States took what was then called the Mexican Cession. This territory ran from modern-day California 
New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Utah, Nevada, Southern Colorado, and parts of Southern Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Latinos continue to live in these regions despite the change of country ruling over them, and to this day, if you do an overlay of regions of large Mexican populations, they correspond to the old map of the Mexican Republic. Just saying. Unfortunately, Asians and Latinos were usually grouped together as, quote, non-whites and were subjected to severe racial discrimination by whites. However, many Anglo-Latinos, or Latinos that could, quote, pass for white, managed to use this fact to benefit their families and distance themselves from their darker-complexioned Latino brethren. We should also note that the American-Mexican border in this era was very fluid, with people and businesses passing over it with ease. It was not until the 20th century that efforts at border enforcement ever got underway, and even then, merely haphazardly. The point is that all three of these groups attempted to settle in the West to better their lives and gain a modicum of prosperity for their families. But often, they were oppressed by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and hurt by out-of-control business interests. This brings us to another group that came to the West, although this is not a racial or ethnic group, but an industry. See, American businesses came to the West and created mining and lumber towns. Historians and economists have come to call these businesses extractive industries, and they're called extractive because they were attempting to obtain copper, silver, gold, timber, and other raw materials. These raw materials were needed back east to create finished goods like copper for telegraph wire, gold and silver for money, timber for furniture, iron and coal for steel in order to make railroads. Some scholars say that the West served a, quote, colonial relationship to the Northeast, since the process of turning raw materials into a finished product usually happened outside of the West. However, this also brought economic development and jobs, though the development was haphazard and environmentally destructive, while the jobs were harsh with low pay. So again, the good and the bad taking a balanced view of history. The last industry to come were cattle farmers. And this is important because after the Civil War, there was a growing demand for beef. Cattle had traveled with Civil War armies, and rapidly growing cities created a demand for beef. Since this lecture is running a little long, let us pick up next time with the slide Cowboy Life, and we will talk about how the myth of an American cowboy does not fit the historical reality. So make sure you go and access the Gilded Age West Part 2. And that is all I will have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.